podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given. Myself, Toby Tarrant, Daniel Norcross and joining us from the other side of the world is Mr. Stephen Finn as well. Finney, you must be delighted because, you know, you've flown to the other side of the world and you're probably on the flight to Australia going, oh, imagine if it's not possible for me to do the podcast with Dan and Toby. That would be rubbish. But no, luckily, there is no escape because of the wonder of technology. You still have to do this podcast with us. You must be delighted. Now, because the Wi-Fi signal is so bad where you are in Australia, we can't see your face on the camera at the moment. But I'd imagine it, it's grinning from ear to ear. Uh, yeah, I've just had to leave a few of my work colleagues. Um, we were having a lovely brunch down on um, Coogee Beach, mm. poached eggs, smashed avocado, coffee. And then I looked at the time and it was five to nine, the morning time over here. Uh, and, and I had to come back up to the hotel. So I'm in my hotel room now talking to you mm. instead of being down on Coogee Beach watching um, watching the world go by. So yeah, delighted to be here. Um, and if we could move it along as soon as possible so I can get back there, then that'd be much appreciated. No, it's, it's lovely to hear from you as well, mate. Brunch? Who has brunch at half past eight? What's been happening with you? How jet-lagged are you, Finny? If you're having brunch? Very, very. I've been waking up at 4.30 in the morning. I'd say brunch has got to be 11, 11 a.m. on. It's got to be 11. It's got to be 11. Yeah. If he's having brunch at 8.30, think how many bloody meals he's going to pack in. Yeah, he's going to come back. He's yeah, going to come back. Good. The la- the fattest member of this podcast, which would be, would take. Some, I mean, I'm, can you imagine? <laughs> that'd be a good effort. <laughs> would be, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, now, Daniel Norcross, how are you, mate? Well, you know, it's been it's been one of those weeks, hasn't it? It's been it's been a week of shocks and revelations and disturbances that have uh, battered me from pillar to post and taken out the very sort of lifeblood and soul of of my inner mental party, but. I don't think, you know, and there's been so much actually to, to have to take in this week, but it was at around about, oh, six, what was it, about 6.50 odd today when I finally got around to watching the recording of you on uh, Richard Osborne's House of Games. Uh, when yes. I heard the answer to the question, what is the record for the most number of parking spaces now. in a car park? In no. the world now. Well, before you, before you answer this, before you say anything, I'd be interested to hear Finney's opinion on this. Well, let me just quickly Listen. contextualize for people that are listening around the world who have no <laughs> idea what we're talking about. Our millions of listeners around the world. There is a TV mm. show in the UK called Richard Osman's House of Games. It's a brilliant quiz show, and I'm a guest on it this week. And it's on BBC Two at six pm every day, Monday to Friday. And um, yes, yeah, so I'm a guest on it all this week. And um, well, Daniel, I'll let you now pose this question to Stephen Finn. So ask Finney the question again. So, so the, the question is this. Now, as it, as it happens, he was sort of slightly helped out by having a partner who wasn't a complete raving maniac. But nonetheless, the, the, the question is, the largest car park in the world has how many car parking spaces, Finney? How many, how many do you reckon? The biggest in the world, Finney. The biggest car park in the world. What is, what's the largest number of car parking spaces in a car park in the world? That's basically the question. <sighs> I'm going to say... Yeah, it's not easy. Think of big football stadiums. You know, big football stadiums. A thousand. A thousand. Let's say a thousand. I mean, I don't think a thousand is completely insane. What? I mean, it is quite, it's quite insane because you've only got to see the Heathrow or Gatwick 
long stay car park to mm-hmm. know that there's at least a thousand in that alone. But but Toby's answer, Finney, get this. Toby's answer was 128,007. Right? <laughs> now, I've done some maths on this, right? So having gone on to uh, <laughs> what car park, not quite. I basically Googled the standard width of car parking spaces mm-hmm. and the standard clearance between Fucking cars I mean, in rows. You do fill your park. days with, with some no. of the bizarrest activities, but please continue. Well, I was inspired by you, Toby. I was inspired. Okay. So, so in, in order to create a car park of 128,007 spaces, aside from the fact that you'd have to wonder what the fuck anybody is going to that requires at least, what, 250,000 people to be able to park a car in it. But, um, you know, aside from that strangeness, the, the sheer space it would need to take up, right? So even a 10-storey car park, right, that was four deep, four mm. rows deep, right, mm. would be 4.5 miles <laughs> wide. <right? laughs> so it's you can squeeze park. that down a bit. So you can have 1.5 miles wide and you could have about 400 yards deep you could yeah. have that and 10 stories high. Mm-hmm. It would be more than visible from the moon. It would be visible from frigging Mars. <laughs> it would be the single largest structure known to mankind. <laughs> it would contain 128,007 cars, Toby. Well, so yeah, yeah. look. I, I mean, look, I, I, what I also want to say is that you redeemed yourself quite brilliantly, as I said to you off air. Everybody needs a bit of luck on their way to a century, and I'm very proud of you because he won the episode, Tobes. He won yeah. the episode against three stand-ups, one of whom was actually a ventriloquist, and the other one was away with the fairies. So he had like basically he had he had, he had one serious piece of competition, and he saw her <laughs> off brilliantly, and he won the plywood cricket bat. Oh and yes, I'm, I cannot tell you how proud I am of you, Toby. But but I, I thought we needed to just go through those numbers one more time. I I did I did I didn't actually watch it because I don't like hearing or seeing myself. No, I wouldn't want to hear myself say no. that either. I'd so, be shocked and humiliated. So, but you won the bat, which is but I great. did get inundated on Twitter with with strangers. You know, the nice thing about being on the show is I've got a new following now, and ninety five percent of them called me a moron. Uh, because of my answer, I will. Can I? I'm going to. Well, I'm going to explain my answer here with two two things in my defence. By the way, the answer was twenty thousand, yeah. Finney. But um, twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. So it's still biggest. pretty big, but, but yeah, it's but, but not one hundred and twenty. Yeah. But you, Finney, were were nineteen thousand away, and Toby was one hundred eight thousand and seven away. So you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, now I'd like to two two things in my defence. I'd like to say first of all. You always think if it's a question like that, it's going to be something ridiculous because there's always a crazy answer out there somewhere. My other thing is my dad told me a story once. He did a bit of filming at uh, a huge football stadium in Sao Paulo years and years and years ago. And outside it was this car park and him and the cameraman both forgot where they parked. And it took, my dad said, I mean, oh, let's go for dinner. We'll come back, see, you know, if we can find our car. But it's the biggest car park he'd ever seen. And they had to go back three days in a row before they could find their car because it, it was that big a car park. So I had that in my mind. So I'm I'm picturing this 4.5, 10 storey car park that you 4.5 mile wide, 10 storey car yeah, park. Yeah, the amazing thing about the, about the answer is, which I get, I, I see your point, Tobes, I get it. But and even to make the plot thickens, right? So this largest car park is North Edmonton. In yeah, Canada. In Canada. I What's know. There? I know. What what who's why twenty thousand people parking <laughs> like 20, in Edmonton? 000. That's a very unbelievable. Good 
Now, you may remember last week that we talked about Devon Conway punching a cricket bat in anger when he got out in the T20 World Cup. And as a result, he had to miss the final, a decision I'm sure if you go back in time, he probably wouldn't punch that cricket bat. So we asked you to get in touch on Twitter and on Instagram and tell us some of the angriest batsmen that you have ever seen in your club cricket playing days. And uh, there was no shortage of wonderful answers. So hello to Dave, who once saw a player throw his helmet away, but it landed on his own car windscreen and smashed it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, crikey, that is bad. (laughs) Finney, I didn't ask you this last week. I did ask you if there were certain players that you avoid in the dressing room, but... What, what are you, do you, have you ever thrown your toys out the pram? If you walk into a dressing room being a number 11 and throw your toys out the pram, everyone just laughs at you because uh, <laughs> it's completely and utterly pointless throwing your toys out the pram. But bowling wise, like I've, I have come in and like booted my bag before, just kicked it like as if it was like a football. And then you just sort of get it out of your system and move on. But bowlers don't tend to blow up like that because you've got so much time to contemplate whilst you're out on the field. Yeah, it's not something that I'm more renowned for. Do you find, because in my very, very low level of cricket comparatively, but I used to get angry when I was a young whippersnapper. But as I've got older, I realised the anger I got, the crapper I bowled. Do you, do you, some bowlers seem to be able to use it as fuel, like a, I'm pitching an Andre Nell or a, or a Donald, basically all the South Africans. Um, Rabadas, the Rabada is the current one that seems to need to get angry to bowl well. Do, do you find that it affects, affects your bowling at all? Yeah, I mean, you try and have this sedate state of mind uh, when you're bowling. There's a, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of sports psychology stuff around this and you're either a warrior as a bowler, so you need that fire in your belly to be able to steam in and bowl quick, or you're an assassin and you like to go about your work meticulously and quietly and, and just pick things off with a clear, steady mind. And I would say that as I've got older, I've become more on the assassin end of the spectrum. When I was younger, I definitely like would spray the odd bloke and, and get stuck in and get angry and that. And because I bowled a bit quicker, I could just bowl bounces at them and make it uncomfortable. But I don't bowl as quick anymore, so, so I can't so I've got really nothing nice to fall back on. <laughs> yeah. What what what, 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 are, what are spinners doing this situation? Do they all just end up being like Yoda? <laughs> well, no. Spinners spinners are like caged fast bowlers because they all wish they could bowl fast. So mm. the angriest bowlers that I've actually seen, or the angriest bowler that I've ever played with, was Murali Kartik, and it was like he'd be bowling, and he's a wonderful, wonderful bowler. He'd be bowling, bowling, and then someone would try and sweep him. And they'd literally go sprinting down the wicket, like straight in their face and shouting at them, you can't sweep me, you can't sweep me, don't sweep me, do not sweep me, like <laughs> shouting at them. And, and like when he got them out, if you find, there'll be trick clips on YouTube of it, but Murley Kartik, like some of the send-offs that he gave batsmen for a left-arm spinner, it, like, it's like he's just bought a 95-mile-an-hour bouncer and sniffed it off their nose. And all he's done is he's got someone stumped. Like if he got someone stumped, he used to love it go running down the wicket and be like, don't jump out to me. Don't jump out to me. I'll get you. Like, <laughs> it was just so funny how angry you got. I feel like a sweeping's a very, absolutely allowed to be a part of a batsman's arsenal when facing spin bowl. You can't, that's, like, that's like a fast bowler going, don't clip me off the hip. Don't you dare clip me off the bloody hip. I hate that. That's but it really is cute. like, when I, when I was younger, I used to hate being pulled. It was like, 
it was like a um, an attack on me as a person if someone <laughs> played a pull shot against me, even if the ball was there to to hit. It just made me really angry. And, and James Taylor actually is one of the people that just used to wind me up so much when I bowled at him because he's tiny and a ball that I would let go of. And I'd think, well, there's no way he's pulling that because it's hitting the top of the stumps. He would pull it and it was just red mist. It was like the Murray Kartik sweeping red mist. <laughs> I had pulling red mist with James Taylor because I just I couldn't fathom how someone could be that small and just pull everything. And, and it just used to wind me up. And he's a lovely guy and I'm friends with him, but I'd bowl at him and I'd just get so unbelievably irrationally angry um, because he played a pull shot against me. I'm afraid I feel like I feel like the Father Ted thing when I've got with Dougal here about near and far, right? And, and you're getting really angry that short people can pull you when, when the reason is that short people are going to pull you. Tall people. Hick couldn't have pulled that ball. But of course he can because he's tiny and weedy. Yeah. So what he's got to do is just rock back. And Finney, you like that sort of back people. of a length line Finney, that must have driven on. you insane when your stock balls just yeah. there for the pull shot. Oh, you... I remember yeah. when Tendulkar used to come over to England as well. And Tendulkar used to that wonderful leave where he'd sway out the way of the ball. But he'd sway out the way of the ball and let it go past his chest. But it would like just go over off stump because he was so nimble and yeah. flexible. Well, was he nearly LBW when the ball hit him on the back once? That's he, right. He went, he went to, he went to duck, and the ball hit him on the back. And for all the world, it, it wasn't given out, but he looked plump. Yeah. When you, when you rewatched it, if you watch some old clips of Tendulkar on any pitch where there was a bit of bounce, he'd basically just duck under everything until you bowl too full, and then he'd just <laughs> cover drive you gloriously for four. Oh, Finney, Finney would have hated a, a prime Tendulkar. Um, some more stories from you from uh, angry batsman that you've seen in your club cricket playing days. Richard White on Twitter says, I once witnessed an opposition player kick the stumps down, kick a chair through the dressing room, grab his kit, get in his car and drive across the outfield all because he got bowled by a 12-year-old spinner. <laughs> 12-year-old spinner's a Finney specialty. Didn't you spank some 12-year-old spinner all around the park in a Middlesex 2s game earlier this season, Finney? Yeah, and then he went and won a few man of the matches in the T20 Blast, and I didn't feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> that was at the start of the season when we found Finney's level. It turns out against 12-year-old spinners, Finney's, Finney's absolute gun batsman. It's just everything above 12 where he struggles. <laughs> um, Ed Ludlow messaged us on Instagram. He said, our best batsman by miles was seriously fiery. He once chucked his glove on the pavilion roof after being given out to what he considered a shocking decision. Our skipper said he had to go and get it down and cool off, which he grumpily agreed to do. So he found a ladder in brackets. One of the lads had a typical Sparky's van. By the way, if every there's always one Sparky at every cricket club. <laughs> if you go to any cricket club, there'll be a Sparky's van pulled up. Uh, so he found a ladder because one of the lads had a typical Sparky van. He swore a lot, but he finally agreed to climb up. He then promptly fell through the shitty old pavilion roof, injuring himself to the point that he missed six games. Thankfully, not too serious, but fucking hilarious for all concerned. <laughs> Except the skipper, who was horrified we temporarily <laughs> lost a player after it was him who insisted he'd go and get the glove down in the first place. <laughs> this yeah, is that the would be the worst. That's the worst bit of it, isn't it? Because, you know, that's, that's another six phone calls he's got to make over the next six weeks. <laughs> yeah. Especially if he was good. By the sounds of it, he was like their best player. That is an absolute catastrophe. The captain's got to take a long, hard look at himself there. I mean, if he's your best player, this is the Kevin Peterson argument, isn't it? You know, should mm. we have just... We, maybe we should have just let Kevin Peterson throw his gloves on pavilion roofs 
and made one oh. of the shit players go and get them down. Maybe we should have mollycoddled KP Moore. He was our best batsman. Oh, I'm a firm believer in this. I, I, was, I was captain of a crap team for 15 years and we had a prick in our side uh, for <laughs> the whole 15 years. You mean you had I'm another say- prick in your side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that Kevin Peterson is that, by the way. But I'm simply saying that, that if you do have a match winner, then the, the, the way to do it is you just get the other nine players into a huddle and you say, look, he's a prick, but he's our prick. Doesn't matter. <laughs> he's going to win us our games. Just, just let it go. I love you all. We all love each other. Everything will be fine. Just get water for ducks back. And you just let the nonsense drift over you while they go and score their match winning 120s or take in, in our case he was a he was a bowler. He, he could bowl twenty-eight overs out of fifty-five on uh, on a league match day. Never go for more than two and over. Pick up four or five wickets. Always saved us from relegation. Yeah, you know, those those people are like gold dust. Complete prick. I mean, he, when, he, when he picked up two for 36 one time when uh, the oppo got 210 for two when he got the second wicket he got us into the huddle and he said I've got two for 36 and you lot and none for plenty <laughs> and you know it doesn't, it's not great for team morale but, um, <laughs> but you just, that's what I say you take the other nine to one time and say yeah they would have got 260 otherwise if it hadn't been for prick so <laughs> protect your pricks I mean, it's true. It's like everyone's got that mate who's an arsehole and I'll call him an arsehole all the time. But if somebody who isn't one of our mates calls him an arsehole, I'll defend him mm. until, until, until the cows come out. Finney, genuinely, I mean, you've obviously, you'll have played with all sorts of different characters in dressing rooms and middle sex in England. Genuinely, are there some players who you're like, even you're like playing with him going, oh, he's a fucking nightmare, but oh, he's good. We just kind of have to let him do what he does. Oh, you don't have to name them, Finney. No, I'm just saying you, you, there's always an element of you're not going to get on with absolutely everyone that you play cricket with. And that's fine. I mean, that's human nature. The fact you put 20 men in a room together, you're not going to get on with every single one like a house on fire. But you do always just realise that there is a common goal here and that, that you're just going to muck together and make the best of what, what you've got. So, yeah, I think all sports teams are like that. But I have been very fortunate in the last however long that, at Middlesex especially, when I played there, that it's just a bunch of really, really good people which make going to work an absolute pleasure. Sometimes you need that prickly character in there, though, to stoke things up or to fire things up and to have conversations within the dressing room, confrontation occasionally. But yeah, I think generally I've been lucky that I've played in teams. And I mean, I, I don't think I come across as the sort of person who like openly doesn't get on with people. So yeah, I just keep my head down and get on with it. Now, the interesting thing you said, because I was going to ask you a question there, of, you know, in all the dressing rooms you've been in, is there a sort of particular era or a particular side that was you felt the best team camaraderie? Now, did that go in hand with results? Was it also the most successful Middlesex team you played in when you said that a few years ago the atmosphere was brilliant? No, I think, no, actually, the best teams I've played in, there probably has been a bit of needle in the dressing room. But not particularly bad, but just mm. um, the people willing to say things or confront things and not let things slide. You hear a lot about team standards and elite honesty, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that sometimes you do need those characters in there to be able to confront people and just and challenge things, I suppose. Not confront, I think challenge is a better word for it. But yeah, I think the, the teams of really, really great blokes where everyone gets on like a house on fire. Yeah, they they've not necessarily being the best teams I've played in but I also don't think it's a bad thing it's just the way that it's transpired 
I was, I was, I was, the reason I asked you was, it was interesting because, you know, they always, from the outside looking in, the way it's sort of always sold to fans is when a team's successful is because they're amazing team spirit and their best mates and stuff like that. How did you find, did you find in dressing rooms where there was a bit of needle, maybe say it was a little bit prickly, was that because of bad results at the time or was it genuinely just a clash of characters, whether it was winning or losing? I suppose the thing with dressing rooms is everyone has their idea about the best way to win the game because cricket, there are so many different permutations. There are different plans, bowling changes, shuffling the bat in order, etc. And and typically your, your guys who are experienced and have played for a long time will have an opinion on the best way to win that game because every time you go out there, you're obviously playing to win. And it's more differing opinions on that front where people will disagree, hash it out, and then everyone will come out with a plan at the end of it. But because you have that conversation about when you declare or who's going to bowl or what the plan is to bowl, if you have those conversations, you actually do eventually come to the right answer. So, so yeah, I think having different opinions in the dressing room on things such as that is a really good and positive thing. Yeah, no, that, that, that does make sense. I was just curious. That's, that's very interesting feeling. That's unlike you actually, mate. Normally, you know, you bore the shit out of us all, but uh, that was actually quite interesting. So thank you for that. (laughs) 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 I don't know why I enjoyed that. I made myself laugh. Uh, Now a final, a final batsman story from, uh, from Jack who says, at the end of our sixth form, students versus staff match, our history teacher, one of the most mild-mannered guys, was so enraged by being given out LBW off my bowling, in brackets, I'll be honest, it was a rank full toss. The weirdest thing was that he didn't get angry or say a word. He just quietly walked off. He rummaged into his kit bag for something. He pulled out a lighter and some cigarettes. Next thing we hear is him then setting his bat on fire and shouting, you useless piece of fucking shit. He then lit a cigarette, <laughs> sat back down, and didn't say another word all game. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I think that's absolutely marvellous. I mean, that is such a brilliant way to maintain your mental health. It, 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 what you're saying is, what, it's awesome. not you, it's the bat. Yeah, and then you can actually just burn it down. You can put that incident away from your life. I played in a Masters V students game when I was 13 and when I was even more obsessed with cricket in many ways than I am now because there was nothing else to be obsessed with. And I got out to the very first ball of the match, caught behind to a ranked long hop, which I cut, went for a cut and got like a really fucking uselessly thin top edge to the keeper who caught it. And I've been so looking forward to this. We've been so looking forward to like smashing the teachers around. Got out for naught first ball. And I wish I'd burnt my back. <laughs> Instead, I just fixated on how awful and rubbish I was as a human being and how life had no meaning and how there was there was just nothing left for me. Uh, especially as it was the end of the season, because always I played that game right at the end of the season. I you know, didn't know when I was going to next pick up a bat. I should have burnt my bat. That would have been brilliant. <laughs> the ultimate. I mean, but not with a cigarette lighter, just napalmed it properly. Like, really, really torched it. <laughs> like the old, the old Lynx can and a lighter trick. Like yeah. That. Either way to do it. All right, that's, at least they did it at the end of sixth form. What you don't want to do is set your bat on fire on like, two games into the season and now realise you're batless <laughs> for, the ne- for the next five months. Um, now let's move on to, uh, to proper cricket, not the crap standard of cricket that I've played out over the years. Um, proper cricket which has been taking place this week, first of all, I want to say. Uh, Let's start with on the pitch, because you may have noticed it's been a very, very busy week off the pitch. But um, who on earth 
poor New Zealand. We talk about them being the nicest guys in cricket. How on earth have they been roped into a T20 series with India after losing the World Cup final? They lost the World Cup final on Sunday and played India on Wednesday in a 2020. Won't be surprised to see that New Zealand have lost all three games and lost that series 3-0. I can't imagine being less up for a cricket game in my entire life. Vinny, you, you must have played in some dead rubbers in your career, sort of test matches when the series is gone or, or games in the county level where you can't, you, can't, you can't go up or down in the table. Come on, be honest. I know you're going to say the ultimate professional. It must be difficult to get yourself up for some games more than others. Yeah, I mean, when you're in a scenario like that, you almost have to kid yourself or trick yourself that there's more on the game or more riding on it than there actually is, especially in my early years. Middlesex were a weak team when I first started playing, which was a blessing because it meant that I played a lot as a youngster and got experience, but we got drilled a lot of the time by people. So, yeah, those games at the end of the season where you're competing for either 17th or 18th place in the county list, um, it's not that motivating. So, yeah, you find games within games to try and get yourself through it. But, yeah, the motivation when... You're, you're trying to look for reasons to be excited to play a game of cricket, I think can be difficult sometimes. And you've got a feel for New Zealand there. They've literally, I spoke to Southie the day before the final and I was like, mate, really good luck tomorrow. Hope you do it. Well, like like everyone, like hope, hope you guys win. It would be great to see you boys win a trophy. And I was like, oh, what's the plan afterwards? And he was like, mate, we literally had the final that night. We're flying to India. And then two days later, we're playing a T20 game in India. And I was like, it's essentially such a shame because if they'd won the World Cup, they wouldn't have been able to celebrate it. And yeah. it, like you just literally had to, you can't savour those moments. The schedule is so packed that you can't savour the moments where you've actually achieved something as a team because two days later, you've got Rohit Sharma trying to lash you out of the park. So yeah, it's not really that surprising that they've gone and um, gone and lost that series. Oh, that was so, it, so it, And it's so, it's so unequal as well, isn't it? Because you might say that the same thing applies to India they've just come off the back of a disappointing World T20 themselves and they've got to play those games but at least they play them in front of packed stadium and an adoring crowd so every time they whack a six <laughs> at least at least everyone's going completely berserk <laughs> New Zealand does, you know what, what do you get out of that absolutely nothing oh. and, and you know and I, look, this is this speaks to a wider ecological problem with the world doesn't it but so I watched those games and sort of the level of pollution, the kind of difficulty of peering through the gloom into seeing the actual games and really wondering. There was a, like a metaphorical fog around the entire process. Yeah, it still didn't stop me watching it because I was so bereft of watching cricket after having had the World T20 for the previous month. I went, oh, yeah, I'll watch these poor bastards be slaughtered and get <laughs> dragged. <laughs> Through horror, throughout for our entertainment, it's like I mean, a Sydney Pollock film. They shoot horses, don't they? You know, the one about the twenty-four hour dance competition. It's just, it's got completely berserk. Not just that. You look at the Test series going on around the world. You know, Sri Lanka are playing the West Indies mm. for heaven's sake. Pakistan are playing Bangladesh in a series of T20s. You know, England have got it lucky. They don't. They don't actually have to play any meaningful cricket until the eighth of December. Whoa, three whole weeks <laughs> off. I, I, I mean, you're, I can't believe... You. I actually genuinely, I flicked on the New Zealand-India game. I watched a bit of the first game and I went, I actually haven't got this in me. I'm actually international T20'd out. I actually was more... I was following the Sri Lanka-West Indies game closer. I was like, 
you know that the schedule's getting hectic when the fans are tired. <laughs> I was literally, yeah. I was literally <laughs> there going. I actually haven't got this in me. Do you know what? I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch something on Netflix. I think I can't actually be asked to watch a 2020 international. I've just seen supposedly the pinnacle of it, and here we are, three days later, watching one of the teams that was playing in the final. Well, uh, I know absolutely. what you would do. I know what you would do. You, you were creating your master plan for a 128,007 car <laughs> exactly. park that exactly. you were going to place in the middle of the Sahara Desert <laughs> for no reason at all. One day when the, one day when there's you know there's a new pandemic swirling around the world and once again all the cricket gets played in 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 you know the Middle East or something they'll come crawling back to me and say Toby we've got all the test playing nations in Abu Dhabi they're squeezing the entire cricket calendar into the next few months we need a big car park can you help and I'll go yes Yes, I, I'm so glad you came. So glad you finally came and asked me. Thank you very much. So you, 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 you know, I'll ruin the laughing day. on the I'll other side the of your I face. You, Toby, I'll ruin the day. <laughs> you certainly will. You certainly will. Right, let's get to the to the off the pitch stuff. It's been a ridiculous week in the world of cricket. It really has. Dan mentioned there England's next meaningful game of cricket. Uh, well, it's rather important. They've got um, they've got some some Ashes Test matches on the way. Uh, in a few weeks' time, which is very, very exciting, even if I still do believe that we're going to get absolutely pummeled. But yep, 8th of December, Brisbane Cricket Ground. Finney will be there commentating, working on it. So Australia, just a few weeks before the Ashes begins, are going to enter the series with, well, at least a brand new captain, very possibly a brand new wicketkeeper as well. Um, it remains to be seen whether Tim Payne features in the side. So if you don't know, if you've been living under a, a rock, uh, Tim Payne has stepped down as the Australian cricket captain. And um, it works weirdly. It's not the first Australian press conference of a player that we've seen in the last few years. They're becoming quite regular, these things. Uh, he was basically caught sending unsolicited, shall we say, sexual messages to a former colleague at Cricket Australia. And he didn't think it was behaviour befitting of an Australian captain. And so he stepped down as captain uh, for the upcoming Ashes series. It's it's fascinating, this story, because he was exonerated in 2018 by Cricket Australia. They they investigated it at the time. They decided to not take it any further. And it's only because it's come to light recently that Tim Payne has decided to step down. I mean, where to begin with this story? First of all, from a cricketing, purely cricketing point of view, because we are a cricket podcast, Finney, I, I don't know if that's a, a bad thing for Australia. Purely on the field, I don't think losing Tim Payne's batting and captaincy is necessarily the end of the world for them. They could have lost worse players than Tim Payne. Yeah, I mean, they, well, they've named the squad, though, haven't they? So I don't know whether that means that he remains in it. Yeah, I. it's a tricky situation, isn't it? I mean, if it was dealt with and everyone had agreed that they'd moved on, then how has it come to light now? And he's had to step down as the Australian captain. Yeah, it's um, it's a tricky one, and I don't know how I feel about like I, I'm sort of don't know how I feel about whether the side's going to be stronger or weaker with or without him. I've not really thought about that yet. I mean, I'm sitting very much on the fence here, but yeah, it's just a shame to see someone's name dragged through the mud like that I think because I, it, like it's not the sort of stuff that you want to be headline news is it I think no it it isn't and I, I think it's a, it's quite a complicated story actually that it, when we woke up to it and I believe Finney and the BBC TMS team were in the air when the news broke so 
whether or not they got it on the plane or not, I don't know. But I got it when they were about 10 hours from their destination. And it was dead easy to laugh at it because the messages were published. And of course, they sound absolutely ridiculous to the ear of people, you know, when you just read them without context or whatever. But there's the issue of consensuality or not, uh, because it appeared that the exchange was perfectly acceptable until the dick pic. And this is is a very significant issue, this, uh, potentially. That the degree to which it was um, the person who received the final message, which she was reputedly very unhappy with, is, is sort of being victim-blamed again. We're seeing a fair bit of this across cricket because, you know, people came up with stories about how she'd actually been done for theft and so trying to make out that she was the issue in this. But the issues were so many, as you touched on there, Toby, they were that in 2018, the Australians were coming off the back of Sandpaper Gate and they'd just seen Steve Smith in a lacrimose performance resign the Australian captaincy. Go four years later and the same thing's happening. And yet when Tim Payne was appointed, this incident was known about. Now, Barrett Sunderason wrote a really good piece in Crick Buzz really identifying that Cricket Australia have got themselves into a similar pickle to the ECB and they give these incredibly mixed messages. So, you know, they've investigated, they've known about it, they've decided that it was okay, but then they've decided that it's not okay for a captain three years down the line. So we don't really know what they consider their line to be. What is the line that they're drawing? And are they drawing a different line for captains from players? Well, evidently they are because he's still available for selection, but Apparently, being Australian captain, you have to have certain sainted qualities that put you above the other players in your team, which is incredibly open to question anyway. And uh, I, I think there's there's a, so much to unpick here, guys, that I'm not sure that there's an easy answer to any of this, except that from an English point of view, of course, the natural English fan was thinking, oh, that's brilliant. There's a scandal in Australian cricket. And then proper English fan was thinking, oh, shit, Matthew Wade will be keeper and he can score a test century. So that Twitter thing about, you know, other people who've scored as many test centuries as Tim Payne, which is actually quite funny, <laughs> if you're all, um, it's, it, we're going to get hoist on a road petard when Matthew Wade does a, a bloody Ian Healy stroke Brad Haddon and starts scoring crucial centuries at number seven. But I think there is, I think there's something more here about, about how we expect sportsmen to behave and also how we treat the people who, if you like, whistleblow or, or speak up about the way they've been treated. So you just get this massive uh, bun fight on Twitter that never really addresses the issues. It just, everything addresses the individuals. And I don't think it can be easy for the players and it must be appalling for the uh, people who are on the other side of it. Yeah, you're right. And that's, you know, that's why I started talking about the very cricket angle because the wider issue, and we'll move on to the, uh, the update on the Rafiq racism um, case as well, but there's so many wider issues at play in the world of cricket at the moment, much bigger than actually the game of cricket. And it kind of, eventually, it comes down to people's opinions because I looked at the Tim Payne thing did he make a stupid mistake? Yes, he did. Was, was he inappropriate? Yes, he was. Should he step down as captain? 
they clearly thought so. He clearly thought it was right to. I don't think it's a great look for Cricket Australia at all that in 2018 they said no and now they've changed their mind. And I think it is worth remembering that in 2018, Sandpaper Gate was, you know, three years fresher. I think the Australian image they were trying to recreate and everybody's seen that Amazon Prime documentary. I think it would have been an absolute nightmare. It would have been, would have been a media shitstorm if it had happened in 2018. Let's be honest with the way that Australia were trying to sort of rebrand themselves at the time. And I do think that probably came into the thinking of it. I, I think there's a wider issue at play here is, and, you know, I, I, I have no shame at all in holding my hands up that saying I'm a little bit liberal woke if that's meant to be a, a slur then fine call me woke because I, I am in all ways and yet I would say that one thing that's come at times from 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 the very sort of far left far liberal far woke if you like is this cancel culture that as soon as somebody makes a mistake they need to be hung out to dry and never forgiven and that's your life over and tough luck you had one chance and you wasted it and I think that's quite a scary place the world is in at the moment and I don't think Tim Payne can do much more than step down as captain and apologise. Yes, there's going to be jokes about it on Twitter, and I'm sure he's pretty cringing about the messages that got sent around and stuff like that. But I don't think he can do much more than apologise at a press conference and step down from being the captain of Australia, which is a huge, huge honour. And that moves us on to the Rafiq thing. Let's talk about that as well. So Rafiq, to be fair to him, has often you know, said, I'm not here just for blood, and I'm not here to just embarrass these people and, and whatever. I want to change the game of cricket. And also, I think he got more riled up by how terribly Yorkshire were handling the entire situation. And if Yorkshire had apologised immediately and held their hands up and said, we made a mistake, I think the whole thing would have been much easier to stomach. Uh, as it was, they, they, they actually got people more riled up, more angry until politicians and everybody in the media was getting involved and it was front page news. Now, also this week, Azim Rafiq, some messages that he wrote on Facebook years ago uh, of an anti-Semitic nature were published. And I think all of us, and we've been very vocal of our support of Azim Rafiq on this podcast, when we saw them, we were all really disappointed. We were, because, you know, we've, we, you know, we saw that and we thought, oh, well, that, that's not a great look for somebody who's done some amazing work in highlighting the racism problem in cricket. Now, I would say at the same time, Azim Rafiq held his hands up, apologised. He got it wrong. He was a young man at the time. And... Alex Hales was also caught, seen wearing blackface at a party, again, a long time ago, 10 years ago, and he put out a statement immediately and apologising. Now, look, it's not the first mistake Alex Hales has made in his cricket career, in his life. He's probably the first to admit that. But I do think we, unless your mistake is absolutely abhorrent, because we've all done stupid things, and I think the Rafiq message has proved that if you dig deep enough, there's a mistake in all of our lives. There's skeletons in everyone's cover. Unless you do something absolutely abhorrent and unforgivable, as a society, you do have to kind of say to people when they apologise, well, mistakes are human and accept them to a certain degree. Um, so the Rafiq thing, it was a sad, sad look. But Dan, I know you feel strongly about this because I, what I didn't like was there was a bit of glee in people that have sort of, and I don't really know why, but over the last few weeks, I felt like there's been some people, and I think it's a stupid minority of people, have this sort of attitude to Azim Rafiq of, you know, oh, he's, he's causing trouble and all, you know, I mean, even seeing people say like, oh, you know, he knows that there's money at the end of this if he plays this right and all these sorts of things. And I don't believe for one moment, in fact, I think that's a disgusting thing to, to level at him. There was almost a bit of hand rubbing and a bit of glee when, oh yeah, look, he said these comments. He's just as bad as the people he's accusing. Rafiq's comments were not appropriate 
And also the things that happened to him at Yorkshire weren't appropriate. This isn't tit for tat. This isn't a game of back and forth. This isn't a game of table tennis. This is racism we're talking about. And if anything, Rafiq's messages that got uncovered prove that there is a racism problem in cricket and in society. And if anything, it supported what he's saying. That's exactly what. That's exactly the correct interpretation of it. Uh, Barney Ronay and Marina Hyde both wrote brilliant pieces on this. But also, you know, the, the hypocrisy around this is absolutely extraordinary. What we want people to do is acknowledge mistakes so that we can learn from them. And you're right that because there's a fear of cancel culture, there's a fear of acknowledging a mistake because actually it, it's almost like the better solution would be to claim that it never happened and just front up and constantly say it never happened. The, the reality is that that's not going to get us anywhere because we know, we know that these these things have been going on. We know that even in Yorkshire's report, they acknowledged seven complaints were upheld within the report that came out. And I think I said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago that it does not matter whether Azim Rafiq is one of the most flawed human beings on the planet or not. If the report, which I understand, says that had Azim Rafiq been still an employee at Yorkshire County Cricket Club, he would have been subject to a disciplinary offence for using the word Zimbo because that is actually more racist or as racist as the P word. That shows a complete lack of understanding of the issues that we need to deal with. Azim Rafiq's character should not be the subject of what we're talking about. Azim Rafiq's accusations and the fact that a whole bunch of them have been upheld shines a light on a problem of institutional racism. And when Azim Rafiq has been found to have made racist comments in a Facebook conversation, that doesn't mean that there's no racism. That means that there's more racism. Yeah. That means there's a culture of racism that, that spreads across all sorts of cultures. We have to stop getting defensive about this. And go, no, hang on, you're the racist. Because we've heard this so many times before and acknowledge that it exists. And try to identify what it looks like, where it happens, and what you can do to stop it. That is the point of this whole process. It is not to discredit everybody involved in the stories that come out. So it's a he said, she said, tit for tat. No, you're the racist, you're the racist. This is just lunacy. And, and it's also the reason why people don't come forward, isn't it? Mm. You know, we talk about this in way other forms of life, way beyond cricket, way beyond sport. We talk about how difficult it is for people to uh, report rape because of the experiences they're going to have at trial. And actually, it's we're sort of watching that happen in this way, in this conversation about racism. That the moment somebody says, hang on a minute, something dreadful happened to me, they become discredited. And the discrediting of that person invalidates what happened to them. And that is nuts. Absolutely mm. nuts. Yeah. Um, and I hope that this will, I say I hope, I think there's, we've got a better chance of it stopping, actually, because I think there's a strong body of opinion that is saying, well, this is not about, you know, making Azim a poster boy of goodness and sanctity and perfection, but about the issue that he's trying to raise. And that's what we've got to keep our eyes on. And that's what the focus is going to be. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and there was a very fascinating article on BBC Sport. 36 people, by the way, have contacted Yorkshire's whistleblower hotline you do have to wonder whether that number would be higher 
if there hadn't been the treatment of Azim Rafiq from some corners of social media, long before the anti-Semitic post came out, by the way, I should point out, there have been people that have been criticising him for some reason. I don't know how you could possibly on social media long before then. Again, I'd like to say a minority of idiots, but there has been some. But in 2018, the stat showed 30% of the recreational cricket players in the country, 30% are South Asian, and 15% of them go to county age group, 11% of them go to county academy, and 4% of them end up playing first-class counties. So we are losing South Asian players along the way. Now, that is not because they're all being racially abused, but it almost certainly is a factor. Uh, finally, Finney, I just want to ask you, because this is a sport that you've dedicated your life to and, and that you love like we do, just as a wider general issue, is, have you been a bit sad to see cricket get dragged through the mud a little bit in the last few months? I mean, we joke about the fact that cricket isn't the sexiest sport. It doesn't always get the same media coverage as some, some much bigger sports in the world. And it's sad that it is kind of on the front pages at the moment for all the wrong reasons, I think, anyway. Yeah, I think that, look, the, the, the fact that cricket is going through this, I think it, it's bad for the game at the moment because the public perception, it's not going to be a welcoming place for, for people to come. And one of the most poignant things, I think, that came out of the inquiry in front of Parliament or in front of the politicians the other day was when Azim Rafiq said that he wouldn't want his children to play cricket. And, and for me, I listened to that and I was like, and it made me sad to think that cricket isn't a game that people are going to be comfortable, um, given what's been brought to light in the last little while, that they're not going to be comfortable letting their children go and be in that environment. And I think that that's, that's the most important thing for us as a game moving forward to, to now to go forward and, real, and work out how we want to make this better after all the things that have been highlighted but I also think you're right that it runs deeper than that within society um, I mean we we've been polarized in the last four or five years I think politically anyway then I think that it's driven a wedge between people and, and it's there's been a lot more opinions extreme opinions I suppose in the last four or five years and I think that it's driven a wedge between people and I think that that all of this stuff that cricket is experiencing now is something that is reflected within society. Um, and, you know, I, I sound pretty philosophical now, but I think it's quite no, obvious that yeah. it, this, I, I think it's quite obvious that this isn't, it is a cricket problem, but it also isn't a cricket problem. I think it runs a lot deeper uh, than that. So I think that it would be nice to see things tackled and not just cricket as someone who's dedicated their entire life to cricket and met an unbelievably amount of very good people who are involved with cricket and have also dedicated their lives to cricket. It's a shame to see the, the sport that I love being, being dragged through what I think is something that runs a lot deeper within, within society. Mm. Very I, I read something today that, that also points out what the pandemic had done to this. So, you know, it is, it is something that runs across all of society. The pandemic has in, encouraged people to be morally polarised around you know, using of masks, not using of masks, you know, going on holiday, not going on holiday, moving around, not moving around, going somewhere to get your eyes tested or not. And it's created this kind of moral outrage that exists across social media. And people find themselves sitting on one side or the other as if there is only one side to sit. Mm. And we've lost our understanding of humanity here. We've lost our understanding of, of fallibility that people are fallible, that Tim Payne, Azim Rafiq, you know, there are big cricketers from all around the world who have said things that they wish they hadn't done. 
at various points, but we are getting more and more. Uh, it's not about cancelling. So I don't believe that cancel culture is, is the issue as such, but I think it's about we've become uh, stuck, partly because we've been in bubbles, partly because we've not been socialising, partly because we've been in this pandemic world where everything feels like it's a matter of life and death, in which you're either on one side or the other. And as Finney alluded to as well, our political structures before that have been heading in that direction. So it's like a kind of perfect storm of lack of empathy which is happening and when you're dealing with really complicated subjects and they are complicated subjects because not you know there are gradations of behavior within this that are are worse and better there are those that are being brought about because you're part of a particular culture that you may not have got into that dressing room with those feelings but you may have felt that you needed to say certain things in order to fit in these are all quite complicated things to get your head around. And um, we're not being encouraged to think in a complex way. We're being encouraged to think in very simplistic ways. Mm. And we're not going to find solutions if we think simplistically to complex problems. Uh, that's, as you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. My problem with social media, and I'll say this very quickly, is that nobody goes on Twitter to say they've had an okay day, for example. You go onto Twitter because... Uh, as you were walking to work, a car drove past you and splashed you in a puddle and ruined your clothes. And then you were late for work and then your car broke down and you, then you fell down some stairs. And that's why you go on Twitter to write that. Or you go on Twitter to say, I've just landed in Mauritius. Look at my honeymoon. Me and my missus are in love and we've had the best day of our life, blah, blah, blah. Nobody goes on Twitter to say, yeah, it was all right. It was a Tuesday. I went to work. I went home and watched some TV because it's not interesting. It's not worth writing about. And that gets put into every single topic. You only get people with extreme left and extreme right opinions on everything, black and white opinions on everything, because the people with the more complicated, if you like, more even, more balanced opinions in the middle, don't bother tweeting about it. <laughs> so you get this horrendous extreme of everything, and that is in cricket and life and racism and politics and you name it. That is what social media has done to the world, it has to be said. Let's leave on a very, very light note. Stephen Finn, uh, I do have a bone to pick with you, mate, because Watford... Beat Man United 4-1 at the weekend and you got my favourite ever Man United manager sacked. What, what, what have you got to say for yourself, Finney? Well, I think that it was always on the cards because I think the last couple of times we've played Man United at home, we've also won. So it was never in doubt in my mind that we would win that game. And, you know, Watford, we're going to storm up the league now. So shame Ole has gone. Do you know what? It's actually really sad. I actually got a bit sad yesterday. I, I really like Solskjaer. I had a Solskjaer shirt when I was a kid. The blue one was sharp on the front of it with 20 Solskjaer on the back because I was a glory hunter and loved Man United when I was a young kid, as well as Watford, obviously. But we were in like League Two then. But the interview that he did on like with the club and where he got upset and said that he'd given everything, it made me sad because you know he, he had given everything and, and the bloke's there and he's been... You know, everyone's taken the mickey out of him. He's not done a great job and, and the players have let him down. Uh, and then he had to do that interview where he got upset and said that he hoped that he'd be welcome back at the club. But actually, as a sports person, it, it made me sad yesterday. Yeah, I, I have to say, as a Liverpool fan, actually, and a Norwegian, I've always had a lot of time for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And I did feel that he was in a job that he probably never should have been in the first place. But uh, I'm sure in a few weeks' time, when his paycheck comes in, he'll realise, actually, this is way nicer than getting the stress of being a Man U manager every day. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 he might do. I mean, I, back in about 2000, I was following European football a lot and I had this incredible dream one night that Man United yeah. lost 3-2 at home to Real Madrid. 
And in the dream, I got ab- absolutely everything spot on, right? That Real Madrid went 3-0 up and that Beckham scored the second and, uh, and Man United missed equalising in the last minute. And uh, because I'd had a similar dream the week before in which Man United beat West Ham 6-1, and I failed to put any money on it. I put money on this, £10.66 to 1. Now, at the very end of the dream, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer had a sex change. <laughs> now, in Wait, reality, I why actually... I didn't see that coming. Ha- no, no, why would you see that coming? No one would see that. I didn't see it coming in the dream. And uh, so anyway, I put £10 on it, 66 to 1. I told two of my co-workers about it. And they went, oh, well, I'll, I'll come in £5 each. And sure enough, Man United lost 3-2 after Real Madrid went 3-0 up. Beckham did score the second goal. And I didn't bet on them missing a goal in the last minute because you can't do that. I got 660 quid, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did not have a sex change uh, up to now. So all I'm saying is, to any listeners of Zero Ducks Given, that's still probably out there. You could probably get odds on that. I don't know what they are. Probably huge. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try to get odds on that myself because I'm starting to believe that that dream has not yet been completely fulfilled okay well if, if you what you could do is offer oh I got a soul shot an absolute say you're going to split the winnings and get him to do it and then you can both laugh all the way to I, the I, I think I think he's probably got such a good payoff that he might not yeah he might be right. he might not uh, want halves surgery. of your 660 quid yeah well, on that, you know, we, we really have covered it all this week, haven't we, Jabs? <laughs> we really have. Finny, we'll let you get back to brunch or whatever you're on now, dinner or something. I can't keep up with you. Uh, but lovely to see you both, chaps. See you next week. Cheers. Good one up to everyone in Kuchi. See ya. Podcast Network.